HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Does your diet have you combat ready? You'd be surprised. And we'll find out more today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And did you know that many of the foods we eat every day were not really invented for us, but instead for soldiers to get them ready for combat or to keep them going in the field? Well, it sort of indirectly. Think of things like energy bars or canned goods. Uh, next time you make that packaged ham sandwich. Hmm, think about that one. All of these things were originally invented and produced for rations out in the field for soldiers. And a new book has been written, not so new, but a, a very interesting book by Anastasia Marx de Salcedo called Combat Ready Kitchen, How the U.S. Military Shapes What You Eat. In this book, she shows how the Department of Defense, um, co- the Department of Defense Combat Feeding Directorate—that's a mouthful—the <laughs> plans, funds, and spreads the food science that enables it to produce cheap, imperishable rations, and examines the U.S. military's influence on the American food industry. Certainly, we know that the food has to be non-perishable; it has to be in one of those little packets that you can just rip open and in, in the field and, and eat. And I think anyone who's gone to certain museums or there was a, a fashion for a while of, of trying out things like astronaut food, same thing. Astronaut food is developed in the same way by the Department of Defense. You know, I think the, the one thing that, w- that impressed me so much was tasting astronaut ice cream in a little foil packet that was sort of like you know, freeze-dried cotton candy in a way. But 
all of these things, uh, the technology that goes into it, has really permeated our regular daily diet with any processed foods. So I've invited Anastasia here today on, well, we have her by phone from Boston to talk to us about these technologies and and research that go into feeding our soldiers and the history of what the soldiers ate. Welcome, Anastasia. Thank you for having me, Linda. Tell me what, um, you know, I said, you know, the diet, are we eating a combat-ready diet? But indeed, you show through your book that so many of the innovations for combat food have really permeated our diet. Can you describe a couple of the, what we would be probably very familiar with? I mean, I mentioned energy bars, but I'm sorry to take that one away. (laughs) Well, actually, um, one that goes way back is to uh, cut meat off the bone in meatpacking facilities and pack it in boxes. That was a military innovation during World War One and then in World War Two. And in fact, the consumer was highly resistant to it because um, historically you would want to, you know, have some familiarity with the animal that you were eating to see it and to have a bone in it. Um, and it took over a, a two or three decades from World War II, but eventually the uh, meat industry adapted, and that is now the way we eat our meat. Mm. Huh, interesting. Um, now, Anastasia, you are a food writer and have also worked as a public health consultant and a public policy researcher, so obviously you're, you're, you've been doing a lot of, of um, investigative uh, journalism, where did you where did you find where did you go to find out a lot of the information about these um, military rations? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because um, it's actually information that is hid, largely hidden in plain sight is how I describe it, and it's hidden because it's often very boring. <laughs> And people don't want to read it, but there are many documents out there. Uh, you, the, um, some of the most important ones were com- committee meeting notes on the, from the committee that oversees Army research, and those are available actually at the National Academy of Science Library. Um, and then I corroborated all that information with old food science journals, so and and then uh, when I got up into the modern era, I was actually able to interview people. But because you know the, much of it was historical, I relied on these documents. Right. Uh, well, since it, so much of it was historical, tell us a little bit about what some of the the rations were like that soldiers would be eating. Um, let's say in uh, World War One or even Civil War. We have a lot of, of documentation on Civil War rations as well. Right? Um, well, I mean, rations, actually, I, I jokingly say that they <laughs> are, are, it doesn't say too, anything good about us, that they are actually go back to the uh, beginnings of human history, mm-hmm. ancient Sumer, and uh, there the rations were pretty rudimentary. There are barley cakes and beer. Uh, and green onions. And then um, they're sort of threaded throughout history, um, sort of gathering steam as they go along, adding in a dried animal protein. The Egyptians had uh, dried fish as part of their rations, and in fact, their soldiers received an allotment of them every three months because they're very important. Uh, Moving on up to 
ancient Rome when all sorts of uh, delicious <laughs> salumi entered the ration, such as prosciutto, uh, ham, bacon, and sausages. And this was because not only uh, were the Roman farmers and they raised pigs, but because they controlled the world's salt trade, and so they could suddenly preserve all that pork. Mm, right. And, uh, well, obviously, preserving meats was so important in in history so people could eat during those months where, you know, where animals weren't slaughtered and there was no refrigeration. So, obviously, this was something that carried over well into soldiers and battles. And, unfortunately, war has been around for as long as we have. Um, but... Uh, Certainly now we, you know, there was a, a change in um, how it was transported. I mean, number one, we have to think that food, carrying food, anyone who's, you know, gone hiking and backpacked, much less been in the military service, knows that you have to think very much about how, what the weight of the food is, how exactly, much you're carrying. Exactly, right? and there And there are really... Um, <clears throat> Four basic demands for uh, field feeding or combat food, and they haven't much changed over the course of history, and that is that they must be able um, to last for a long time, so, you know, a preserved food. They must be lightweight. They must be durable because um, a soldier's life in the field is pretty rugged, and uh, usually they must, you know, they they would need to be uh, affordable and nutritious. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nutritious. Now, that's something interesting to talk about. You said that, so when the Roman soldiers would would be taking the dried, processed, or cured meats Mm -hmm. with them, Um, and uh, a lot of explorers would eat, you know, an an energy-packed substance called pemmican. Also, right. Um, soldiers, I would imagine, ate this way back when too for a while. That's actually it's interesting that you bring that up because I was thinking about this um, this morning, and pemmican was actually tried out by the U.S. Army, but uh, they didn't come up with a very tasty version of it. <laughs> and as if you if you know anything about the Native American version, it probably wasn't all that tasty right. either. Didn't although, look so good either. Say it was good, and I think I might like it because I have an odd taste in food. Um, <laughs> but I think it was a sort of mix of the dried berries and the uh, the, the fat, and um, I'm trying to remember. There's a little bit of a grain in there. Mm-hmm. But uh, the um, in fact, MIT developed a pemmican for the U.S. Army. Um, I think it was either before uh, World War One or two, and it was before World War Two. And it just failed. Mm. So that actually ended up evolving into the K ration. And the K ration was, was interesting because it was sort of the first uh, snackier uh, ration. It was something that soldiers could carry in their pocket, and it included, it included a little tin of preserved meat, probably produced by uh, Hormel or so on, a, some soy biscuits, uh, some candy, and uh, I think <clears throat> some cigarettes. Hmm. Yeah, something to keep them going, right? Well, um, you know, calories and nutrition have always been important in a soldier's diet. And, of course, we all know the, the quote from Napoleon and Frederick the Great that armies march on their stomachs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even the slaves back in Egyptian time, I mean, they, they had a much... Um, 
uh, better diet than than a lot of the the other residents at the time because they knew they needed a lot of calories to to carry those heavy stones and build those pyramids, um, and that's about as much as we know in nutritional anthropology we could learn how many calories you know they mm-hmm. needed or one consumed. But this has been obviously um, a theory that's continued with a lot of the preservation techniques. Um, you know, packing in calories and, and nutrients um, in these, uh, what are the MREs, ready-to-eat meals, meals ready-to-eat? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, d- tell me about some of these processes, the, the, the way they process the food, and what's happened in, you know, with that technology. Well, um, one thing, I, I, before I go there, I want to just sort of agree with you there on the calories. And again, because we talked about the different characteristics of rations, and because you are um, reducing their weight and volume, you end up having a more calorically dense item, as you know, with a, a, a dried food or salted food. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was that very important invention of canning that you also brought up, and that has a military link, as you may know, which is with um, the French Revolutionary War, which it came about as uh, after that when the French government was looking for the fifth major way to preserve food. Hmm. And that is actually the moment where I mark uh, the military's entry into the kitchen and into food science. That's so interesting. I'm glad so that you brought that up. Yeah. So canning and the, yeah, and the French military war. Um, that's right. The tins. The tins were very canning. And we call them, but they were tins, right? <laughs> so bringing bringing that up to the moment, um, that canning was probably the most after, important way to preserve food for soldiers up through the World War Two, and um, it still is, except that it's it's. The uh, container has changed, and in fact, the MRE has it, the entree is in something called a retort pouch, which is simply a, a uh, laminated plastic and foil replacement for the tin can. The food is cooked in it and then stored in it, and it retains its moisture. Hmm. So, if you go to the grocery store and see those packages of tuna in foil packets. It's basically uh, army ration. <laughs> yes, yes, you have it. In yeah. fact, those um, those retort pouches were are a direct um, adaptation from the U.S. Army, from the Natick Soldier System Center, which works on all its food and happens to be conveniently located close to to where I live. And those uh, foil pouches were at first um, eagerly embraced by the Asian market because they're cold chain, you know, the refrigeration chain from manufacturing facility to consumer is less robust, and many people um, lack refrigeration or have a very small refrigeration unit. But they are now infiltrating the, the, the American supermarket, and as you noted, we now have these uh, pouches of tuna, and there's, some, there's a, actually a whole line of soups that's just been produced by Campbell's, which comes in these retort pouches. Hmm. And they're also used in, for packaging uh, sauces and so forth in uh, heat-and-serve meals. Right. When you think of so many of those um, dried foods in the little cups, and all you do is add hot water, uh, you know, where you know, that, obviously that was all part of the technology. I would imagine the, the, the processing center. Now you mentioned it's the Natick uh, Soldier System Center. 
the Natick Soldier System Center. Mm. And uh, I, if you're in, actually, you had mentioned earlier the freeze de- de- dried food for astronauts, and of course, yes. that does come out of World War II. Uh, freeze dehydration was originally used to preserve blood products um, for battlefield medicine and to ship them dry, although there were some problems with that. After World War II, there was a small uh, freeze dehydration industry that no longer had a thriving business. And at that time, uh, the U.S. Army looked into freeze dehydration of food and, in fact, spent a decade working on that. And it was not largely successful because uh, freeze-dried foods actually remove moisture from the mouth. It's mm. <laughs> not, not tasty to eat, um, but it did make, you know, some permanent inroads, including freeze-dried coffee, um, the little bits of of uh, fruit and so forth in cereal. And it's funny because lately I've noticed that they've actually had some success with some freeze-dried fruits and vegetables as snacks, I think, because people are looking for healthy alternatives. Hmm. Well, that's right. Um, and, and healthy al- alternatives because, um, you know, we don't need to eat all those calories that <laughs> that obviously the soldiers do, but yet that same those same processing methods are... Um, as you have pointed out, have infiltrated the the regular market of Americans' diets, and or the, you know the world's diets really. Um, what some of the many of the large industries have sort of been brought into to produce a lot of these foods too, and there's sort of a a, a double reason why why that is so. Um, I mean, the army needs them, right? Uh, yeah, that's actually the most interesting part of all this. And um, in the book, I kind of actually got into the topic because I started thinking about the sandwich that I was making for my kids' lunches one day. And then I started noticing that all the ingredients have this long shelf life. Doing research on those ingredients and how they achieve long shelf life led me to the Natick Center. And then after I started to research the Natick Center, I I found that it was um, involved in so many different 20th and 21st century uh, food science breakthroughs. And then I asked myself, well, why? And it turned out that there was this very interesting reason, which is that after World War II, uh, because the U.S. government had had um, such a difficulty transforming uh, the military and the and the sector that supported it to supply the enormous number of soldiers that were fighting, there were at one point there were 11.6 million. It decided to maintain that in a state of perpetual readiness. Um, and that policy is called preparedness. And so that means that uh, the Natick Soldier Systems Center and their combat feeding directorate is constantly feeding the food science that it, it either does or uh, funds into the food industry so that if a very large worldwide conflict came along, it could turn to these companies and ask them to convert their production lines to rations. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, definitely preparedness. That's that's very interesting. Um, there are so many interesting topics that you uh, that you bring up in this book, and 
Uh, we are going to talk about a few more of those as soon as we come back from a break. So stay tuned. National Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef's Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Anastasia Marks de Salcedo, and her book is called Combat Ready Kitchen, How the U.S. Military Shapes What You Eat. And uh, so gone are the days of, of soldiers eating hardtack. I mean, if anyone <laughs> knows what hardtack is, it's a it's basically a really old, stale biscuit, <laughs> and it will break your teeth. Um, and that, I guess that probably went out uh, after the Civil War. But, uh, um, Anastasia, you have mentioned that that the research, um, so much of the research that the Army does is, has kind of gone to another level and, then, and that we, it has entered our, our um, supermarket shelves as well. What, what are some of the um, unusual things or the innovations that we might not have expected came from some of this this uh, military research? Sure. Um, there's actually something, uh, call, and this is related to the energy bar, which is called, but it's a whole class of foods called intermediate moisture foods. Intermediate and, moisture foods, okay. Yeah, and um, those would be anything that's soft and chewy at room temperature. Hmm. Um, so you especially find it in the bakery aisle, you know, the cookies, soft and chewy cookies, many of the um, uh, uh, items that have different kinds of sort of foods with a, you know, a sauce and so forth. And these came out of work done by the Natick Center in the mid-1960s, actually, when it was working with NASA to produce astronaut food. And uh, what it is, is the application of something called uh, water activity, a theory that had come up in the late 1950s, which suddenly sort of changed the way uh, food scientists thought about spoilage and a pathogenic uh, contamination. And until then, people had thought that uh, things spoiled or were able to be contaminated because of a high water content. 
But this theory said, okay, well, some of the water is bound to the food material, so the only thing left over <laughs> for um, microorganisms to reproduce is the thing that's important. And that, so that, that leftover water, which is called free water, um, is there's a measure of it called water activity. And so once um, Natick spent quite a while working with various scientists at MIT and elsewhere to figure out how to predict and control water activity. And once it was able to do so, uh, the modern energy bar was born, Mm. as well as um, many other tasty uh, bakery and snack items. Right, on texture, I guess. I mean, and that's being sensitive to... um to the the taste factor and the mouth feel and texture of exactly. foods. Exactly. Right. And so that's and, and and just as a note here you had mentioned that freeze dried ice cream and that was exactly the problem that they were encountering which is they'd invested a great um, deal of time, money and effort into developing freeze dehydration but it turned out just not to be something that was fun to eat. And it's always very important to make sure that um, soldiers stay well nourished in battle. So they began to look around for something that would be a little bit tastier. And that was these intermediate moisture foods. Hmm. Well, at the top of the show, you mentioned um, meat being one of the first um, items that was was developed uh, for for, um, military rations. And there's this thing called, and I don't, I don't you mentioned it, it was uh, sort of like, uh, not like not like pepperoni, but omarone, omaroni or om- oh, basically right. chunked, restructured steak. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, well, there, there are two things, I think, going on here. There's something that's quite recent, and I'm not sure if this is what you're talking about. It's actually reverse osmosis that creates sort of a jerky. Um, But the other thing, and this is sort of the second major uh, impact that the military has on the meat section, where, by the way, its handprints are all over the meat section, as I already mentioned, the boneless meat. um, And the second thing, which are restructured steaks or restructured meat, all, all came out of a push during the 1960s when the uh, uh, American meat industry finally switched over to selling uh, beef and, and other meat in boxes rather than on the carcass. And at that point, the Native Center saw an opportunity, <laughs> and that wasn't to buy everybody's steaks. What it was was to buy the cheapest cuts there were and to figure out a way to make them look like steaks, huh. which is um, they spent sort of a... Um, the better part of a decade on that project, and it had multiple uh, breakthroughs on an equipment, a, the invention of meat glue by Oscar Mayer, a collaborator. Of course, meat glue. Yeah, that's <laughs> well, and, that, yeah. and that's a whole other. That's a whole other yeah. show, a whole um, other topic. Understanding of of uh, meat, how. Uh, meat fibers work in live and the tissue. And finally, that the addition of the chemical phosphate was really useful for retaining moisture. And by the mid-1970s, they were feeding men and women in in the field um, what they called at the time fabricated veal chop, veal steaks, pork chops, lamb chops, and beef steaks. And contractors on those on those projects 
um, immediately saw the usefulness that this might uh, be for the fast food industry and and began to work with them. And sure enough, in 1981, McDonald's, McDonald's debuted the very first restructured meat product, the McRib. Hmm. And from there, it just took off like wildflower, wild, wildfire and is very prevalent in the refrigerator and freezer case in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm thinking of another innovation from, uh, from the, the war ration technology, a soldier's food, and that's, which would involve restructured meat, and that's the TV dinners. You know, having all the all our food in one little tray, and obviously that you know that came from their technology. Right, the TV dinner, right. <laughs> spam. <laughs> the, the TV dinner was um, developed to feed bomber crews on long overseas uh, flights, and it was uh, developed by a contractor called I think it was called Max and Food Systems or something like that. And later on, it was uh, picked up by Swanson's, which mm-hmm. is a more familiar name. Right. All right, and of course, spam. I mean, that you know, spam was which you know gained such popularity. It's uh, <laughs> a whole uh, spam culture. You know, the, yeah. Now, world. Hormel, I think that produces spam was a long-time military contractor, as were all the major meat companies, and they still are. Uh-huh. And things like that you refer to as shelf-stable bread or, or extended life bread, extended life bread, which you know. <laughs> Is the bread we get in the plastic bags in the on the in the supermarket the you know the sliced white bread, unbeknownst to us that that was really developed for um, by the military. It's interesting. Yeah, this is a surprise, and I don't think I, actually the uh, the very origins of this were way back, and I'm not sure even the military realized that it had been involved in this over time. Um, but they go back to uh, the 1950s when the uh, at the time it was the the Quartermaster Corps, which was the organization that oversees food supplies, uh, was looking for to produce a canned bread. Now, as you mentioned, um, can't you know supermarket bread seems to stay fresh for weeks on end. But if you buy a loaf at the bakery, how how long does that last? Like right, a day right. or two, right? Right. So, um, what the a, a one of their contractors was asked to work on staling, and actually, bread traditional bread begins to stale the minute it comes out of the oven. <laughs> Because the um, the Starks complex that's kind of hard begins to reform, so uh, the the uh, innovation was to add bacterial enzymes to the bread. Now, <coughs> enzymes are something that all uh, living organisms have, and they're actually very similar from uh, fam- you know. Uh, family to family in terms you know the animal kingdoms and so and plant kingdom and so forth so all organisms have a uh, an enzyme called amylase and amylase breaks down starch into sugars in bread in traditional bread that comes from uh, the yeast and the wheat the yeast is a fungi and the plant and the wheat is a plant and they break down the starches into sugars, and then the yeast consumes the sugar and excretes carbon dioxide, and that makes the bread rise. Hmm. 
Hmm. But because they're both, they are a plant and a fungus, they have a relatively cool temperature range. So their enzymes are inactivated by baking. So the innovation here was to use uh, the same enzymes from a heat-tolerant bacteria, add them to the bread, and they, the bread was baked, and the enzymes keep working. So they'll, they keep the bread fresh for weeks and even probably months, although it tends to mold before then. Right, right, indeed. Uh, uh, well, the along with the bread, there's uh, also something that was an innovation that now I, you know, we don't know what we would do without, and that's plastic packaging or even you know, like uh, cling wrap, saran wrap, anything like that. Right. That was right. was that developed. That was also a military development. It was, and that uh, that particular. The project came about because during World War II, there was a tremendous problem with the packaging for rations. At the time, the only film was cellophane, and cellophane is uh, a plant-based polymer um, made from cellulose, but it's a very uh, poor water barrier. So uh, one of the projects that the uh, U.S. Army funded during the war was a, um, a huge classified program into developing synthetic substitutes for everyday items. And by the way, that was centered at the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn, uh, which is now part of NYU. Mm-hmm. And there, um, among many other things, they worked on developing plastic packaging for food. And they worked with Dow Chemical Company, which had uh, created some, the saran polymer. The saran polymer uh, was something that Dow had found when it was accidentally, when it was looking, it was creating uh, dry cleaning fluids, and it was very, very water resistant. And so there at the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn, they figured out all the obstacles into turning that into a film. And it was so <laughs> exciting to Dow that. Um, Four days after Hitler committed suicide on April 30th, 1945, it rushed to the patent office and took out a patent. And sure enough, a couple of years later, Saran Wrap appeared in the market. Hmm. Interesting story. Uh, we talked about um, a lot of these uh, processed foods and and how they. Well, we incorporate have incorporated them in our diet now. Uh, not, not that we need to be bad already, but we needed something to reconstitute some of these. And, of course, what do we do? We pop them in the microwave. Uh, that didn't happen by some ingenious uh, uh, supermarket or uh, inventor, but that, again, was another military application. That's right, microwave. Yeah. Many home appliances, especially kitchen appliances, I should say, have a military origin as well. Mm-hmm. It's the dishwasher, the consumer dishwasher, hmm. as you mentioned. Thank microwave. goodness. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, what uh, we, so much of this has, has in, infiltrated or actually affected the um, ordinary person's diet. And, of course, there's all this talk now about um, the uh, uh, obesity in this, in this country, actually around the world. And, 
and much of it perhaps due to processed foods. And we talked about how you know, the soldiers need to have those, uh, those extra calories packed in. But of course, we don't. And yet we're eating a lot of these processed foods. And the big question is, you know, what is the effect um, having on, on the population at large with so many of these innovations and the foods that we're eating? Um, do you feel that there is a direct connection between that and the, the um, rash of obesity as far as the processed foods? Well, yes, there is, and that is that this. We talked um, at the beginning of the show about these four characteristics of rations, that they are um, imperishable, uh, durable, affordable, and sort of broadly palatable. And because the uh, Combat Feeding Directorate has this mandate to get the food science that goes into rations into the food industry, so it's pretty much giving away all these research freebies um, or actually doing conducting joint projects with the food industry, those the science that has those values then ends up in consumer items. So that's why uh, the grocery store is sort of a parallel of these rations. So that's uh, one connection. Uh, that said, um, the the uh, Natick Center is really doing its job. Its job is to feed soldiers, but soldiers are fed during um, a, a relatively short period and under very special circumstances. Mm-hmm. And those are not the same circumstances that we consumers live our daily lives. Right, right. Uh, well, this is all very interesting stuff. And I, I, I want to make sure to... Uh, to mention that you will be in New York City on Thursday, January 21st, when the show will be airing, um, and speaking at the Museum of Food and Drink, MOFAD, in Brooklyn on this topic. So um, go to mofad.org and if you are in town, and you'll be able to hear more from Anastasia Mark Still Salcedo. And Anastasia, thank you so much. It's it's really um, an important topic, an important topic in our history, in our in our industry, in technology, in our food, in our diet, and keeping soldiers well fed obviously is is very important as well. Um, and there is obviously this continues to move forward, but the big question, of course, is um, you know how it will affect us in the future and. Uh, can you leave us with perhaps a couple of items that might be in the works that we uh, that, that are happening? <laughs> well, I have a couple of thoughts. Um, the first is I'm going to I'm going to describe where um, the army is going with food preservation. But I will say that on the negative, uh, they have discovered over time that the best, most cost-effective way to feed soldiers, as well as because war is tending to be fought in these sort of um, small, very mobile uh, camps and, and groupings, is the uh, pack the packaged combat rations. So they're actually looking to possibly phase out the whole concept of breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and the garrison camp with its big kitchen, and move to this prepackaged system. Hmm. So that's a negative. Hmm. Um, on the positive side, uh, 
during in the late 1990s and early 2000s, the Natick Center actually did um, sort of the parallel, the bookend to the Napoleonic era discovery of canning and looking around for some new food preservation techniques. And it has come up with a few new ones that um, require few or no chemical additives and appear to be um, better nutritionally and certainly in terms of taste um, and, and taste and, and texture. One of those is called high-pressure processing, and I talk about it in the book. It's used now. Um, you'll find actually already find it in the supermarket in some of those uh, chilled preserved guacamoles that stay green for weeks. Yes. Actually, months. I tested one recently. <laughs> um, and you also, it's used on the single-shot uh, uh, juices and smoothies that you can get. And it has been uh, used in a lot in lo- various lines of preservative-free deli items, hmm. so, and there are a few other that are will be are were also researched and will be slowly entering the supermarket probably in uh, the next decade or so. Interesting. Well, something to uh, to realize when you're looking at these things and remember how it all started and where they all came from. And again, um, Anastasia's book is called Combat Ready Kitchen, How the U.S. Military Shapes What You Eat. Very interesting stuff, Anastasia, and thank you so much for, for sharing it with us today and sharing your time. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in today to A Taste of the Past. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.